read that you might be the cool kid You wear the latest fashions on top of all the trends Or have you ever worried you were too much in the mainstream Always so generic, more normal than your friends Well, we've devised a test to put to rest your fears There's no need to panic if you lend us your ears Tonight you can't sleep easy after all that you've heard Cause if you like the show, then you're probably a nerd Oh, Kevin, it's Kevin, it's all To the latest episode of the It's Canon Podcast. That's right, the podcast where we talk about all things, everything, all things geek. We talk about all things comics, all things movies, all things toys, all things video games, all things Star Wars, all things Lego, all things music, all things books, all things anything and everything. And Phil, do you know what the best part of it all is? Uh, I'm hearing somewhere that it's in canon. That's right, it's all in canon because it is the It's Canon Podcast. We're your hosts. On this glorious occasion, I am Boris, and this episode, I am joined by Phil. Hello, everybody. How you doing out there? It's another exciting week in Star Wars. And somewhere in the ether, somewhere, somewhere in wherever he lives is Tyler. He says hi, I'm sure. He's not with us right now, but he will be joining us very shortly. That's right. It is the latest episode of the It's Canon Podcast, and this, because it is Monday... Bill, do you know what it is? Uh, I'm hearing uh, Mandalorian Mondays, baby. That's right. As you know, starting last week when the season started, we are taking an up-close and personal analysis review of The Mandalorian. So, last week we had an awesome guest. This week we have an awesome guest. Every week we hope to have an awesome guest um, to discuss in detail what's going on in the Mandalorian. Phil, who do we have this week? This week, we are very privileged to be joined by Keith Kappel, who is a Star Wars contributor uh, in the in the sense that he writes a lot of background stuff for the RPG, the Star Wars RPG games. So this is a pretty major discussion as you're about to encounter. Um, you know, it really hits into our It's Canon uh, uh, wheelhouse. I would say um, it was, it's very enlightening and he's just such a great speaker and has so much on the go. Uh, yeah, it's exciting times for me. Yeah, no, it was an awesome chat. We're going to have an awesome chat because we're going to discuss everything that happened and what a lot of people are calling a filler episode. I personally don't think it was a filler episode. In fact, I'm going to go even, I'm going to double down and say that this was probably one of the more important episodes in the sense that, you know, Every season of every show kind of touches on different themes, and I feel like we're going to be touching on certain particular themes that we're going to start seeing in this episode, and, you know, it's going to kind of extend throughout the entire season. So that's why I say that this episode is, while, yes, it's filler in the sense that, you know, his his he kind of went on a side quest, you know, I, I still believe and mm-hmm. will maintain that it is a super important episode. Yeah, and I I think that our discussion with Keith kind of uncovers that because we really get to the meat of it, the parallels between 
even the first and now the second episode with the first season. And you can see the important tones that were created in that season about how they're doing the same kind of setup and following the same formula here this season. So it it's exciting times, and I don't think it's filler at all. Um, there's a lot of deep play going on here. And, uh, yeah, we really get into it in this discussion about that, that analysis and the creatures and the cantina and just a lot of stuff that happens. And, you know, we're going to have to call it out for everybody. We already say it, but heavy, heavy spoilers ahead. Right. If you have not watched Mandalorian Season 2, Episode 2, Chapter 10, I will tell you to pause. Don't stop. Just pause. Go watch the episode. Come back. Join us and listen to all things Mandalorian as we discuss Mandalorian Season 2, Episode 2, Chapter 10. Um, I wonder when I'm going to screw up saying that. You know, it's about to happen, Phil. <laughs> Everything. It's a... Uh... It's a mouthful, man. Everything like, seems, hearing you say it. Yeah, everything seems... <laughs> and I love how you avoid saying that, um, FYI. Uh, but, you yeah. know, a couple things. I know that a lot of people are wondering, wait, it's Monday. You should have released a news episode yesterday. Well, you know, mm -hmm. I'm going to put everything on the table. We had some... I had some technical difficulties with uh, our recording equipment, um, with the computer. So it we got... Uh, you know what? When I think about it now, that we didn't really get delayed starting the interview. It just we just would not stop talking. We had so much to talk about. It was a great yeah. discussion, and I didn't want to stop the talk when we were, you know, just enjoying ourselves. So, you know, it is a bit of a longer analysis, which I absolutely love. Um, and you know, I, I implore people, you know, for those of you who do come on to chat men learn with us, it's it's you know there is no time limit. We're just gonna go until we reach the end of the episode, get all of our thoughts out, and discuss The Mandalorian. So, because the discussion took a little longer, because we had, you know, other obligations in the middle of the day, um, we were only able to get The Mandalorian chat recorded. So, on Monday, today, you are listening to The Mandalorian review slash analysis. Tuesday, you're going to get the news episode, all things news for the week, and, you know, this is a huge week for news and for things, as the console wars are really going to heat up, as both Xbox Series X and PlayStation 5 are released, and I guess Series S or whatever the fuck they call it, but whatever. It is what it <laughs> is. Um, and then on Wednesday, we're going to have our featured episode, and our featured episode's going to have another guest as we talk about video games because it is literally on release date and pre-release date for the new console generations. I figure we're going to take a retrospective look into the previous generation. So we're going to take a look at PlayStation 4 and Xbox One. And we're going to give you our best and worst. And we're just going to talk about kind of what the, that particular console war meant. What we think is going to come in the future, and I swear to God, if we say ray tracing once that episode, I'm going to take a shot for every time we actually do say it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's become the buzzword of the internet. Well, that and I guess the, um, the PS5's controller. But yeah, it's going to be exciting times. Unfortunately, today we hit that wall where we all had other commitments that we had to uh, meet up, uh, like uh, basically fulfill. 
So we couldn't do all the episodes that we wanted, but that's okay. You know what? Uh, if there's anything I know about the It's Canon podcast audience, it's that everybody is pretty darn patient and understanding. So I have no concerns there. Exactly. So again, thank you and sorry for the delays. But, you know, we it real life happens sometimes, so it is what it is there. But without further ado, here it is. Mandalorian Season 2, Episode 2, Chapter 10, Analysis and Review. Okay, here we are on the It's Canon Podcast, and we are joined by our all of the crew, really. We've got Boris here, we've got Tyler... And we have a special guest to discuss the next episode in The Mandalorian, the second one, which would be episode 10. We have Keith Kappel here. Hey, guys. Keith? Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. It's great to have you. I know that you've got a little bit of a distinguished resume when it comes to the, uh, the content in Star Wars. I was quite happy to read your profile and see what you've kind of gotten up to in your career. I know you're very prolific in the role-playing game writing circles, and uh, you seem to have done some work in the Star Wars end of things. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, thank you. That's very nice to say. Uh, yeah, I've been lucky enough to be a writer on uh, Fantasy Flight Games Star Wars RPG. They have the three game lines, Edge of the Empire, Age of Rebellion, and Force and Destiny. And uh, uh, while I've done other work for Fantasy Flight as well on other game lines like Legend of the Five Rings, which is a samurai game, which, as you can imagine, shares a lot of themes with Star Wars, and uh, Genesis as well, which is sort of their generic, Star Wars is mostly what I've done for them. Uh, uh, I want to say it's been like 16 or 18 Star Wars books that I've contributed to as one of the half a dozen writers or however many it might have been on that book. Uh, uh. So a lot of... Star Wars canon and lore that I've been steeped in for many years now. Well, canon is what we're all about here on the <laughs> It's Canon podcast. So thank you for that lovely segue, <laughs> I gotta say. And um, yeah, I assume everybody here has watched the second episode of this season's Mandalorian. Is that correct, Boris? Yep, Tyler? You know it. Correct. Wait, everybody... I was supposed to watch what? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to get into it. So everybody be warned, spoilers ahead. I know um, it's it's that time. I think uh, this week we saw a lot of spoilers going out a lot more early than last week with the Timothy Oliphant reveal in The Mandalorian uh, in Boba Fett armor and whatnot and the events of that episode. But uh, this week's episode is called The Passenger. And... Essentially, it opens with the bandits setting a trap for Mandalorian. So we really get a pickup from the last episode, battling the crate dragon. And then we're going right into Mando speeding down on the bike and a trap being set, which is probably one of the most primitive traps that you can do, but probably the most effective as far as Mandalorian's uh, uh, current situation and riding <laughs> device, the speeder bike from Revenge of the Sith. So it, it's kind of a throwback to like an Ewok trap almost, right? Like we saw yeah. some of these on, on Endor, these rope traps to take out speeder bikes. So. Yeah, and that's exactly where my mind went. And I wasn't sure if it was correctly placed or just me searching for nostalgia. 
<laughs> and uh, I, I, I thought it was really interesting that the trap executed and you saw everything kind of explode. You saw everything, you know, Baby Yoda rolling is very, very much shot so that you can notice it uh, and the bike exploding. But the one thing that really stood out to me was the idea that the jetpack was used so quickly by by the Mandalorian, by, you know, our protagonist here. And, yeah, it was really interesting to see him react in such a way to come up fighting and really eliminate the uh, the the raiders that are getting them right there. I have a couple of thoughts on that jetpack specifically as well. Like, if mm-hmm. you remember when they talk about, like, uh, Rising Phoenix, I think is what his covert refers to the jetpack as, right? Uh, the the armor sort of mentions that you'll be able to control it like with your thoughts, I think is mm-hmm. kind of what the line of dialogue was. So uh, I feel like the jetpack is a lot smarter than we may have previously believed, uh, you know, in other examples of Star Wars canon and lore, that, that there is some sort of like helmet-related sort of control that that's uh, maybe reading brainwaves or something to that effect. Uh, or just like a sensor in there that could tell when you're in a crash and there's some sort of safety device. Obviously, we have cars that could automatically stop if the, mm. a camera senses another vehicle. Like how in a setting like Star Wars where there are a lot of advanced technologies, even though we don't get into the, like that hard sci-fi realm, um, I, I feel like we see him sort of go to his gauntlet to activate. It mm-hmm. looks like he's activating the jetpack, but I, I think we could retcon it or somebody maybe me will will eventually retcon it uh to suggest that the jetpack activated automatically to sort of protect him from uh, uh this unauthorized sort of sudden movement like some sort yeah. of accelerometer or something like that and he was just activating weapon systems maybe to use it well yeah he, he mostly used it in that that force awakens creature that was you know that that seemed to be the guy holding the baby yoda or the you know the child sure. uh uh hostage he seemed to be using it in reference to him demanding that jetpack, right? And you're exactly right. I always read that uh, Rising Phoenix thing as kind of like a discipline, where the the armorer was saying to him, "Are you aware of this discipline, or have you trained uh, in this discipline?" I think there is definitely some training that indicates to me, as a Star Wars fan, that uh, there is some kind of relationship mentally right. in terms of the discipline to control it. Like, there's a lot more to it than just an on-off switch, basically. Yeah, right? and I, I really do find it interesting, too, just in reference to last week's episode, how Boba Fett's backpack has a missile in it. Din Jardin's doesn't. Right. Yeah, you know, anyway. So there's different variants on that. And I just really like the magnetic seal that they revealed as well, which we all knew was there. But it was our first time really seeing it in that light, I think. Like being physically attached and detached yeah. and all that. Like, and just that it will stand up on its own to me was for some reason fascinating that he could set it down oh, and it yeah. won't just like keel over. Uh, yeah. And uh, with regards to the missile, like there was a moment where I'm like, oh my God, he's giving away his jetpack, but it's so cool. And we just got it. And I was thinking like, maybe it's an opportunity for an upgrade. They want to give him the missile. We know he has Boba Fett's jetpack. So I was thinking like, oh, he's just going to, he's going to have a missile now and that'll be great. But uh, it was did, even better. What they chose to do, I thought, was even more fun. Did anyone notice there was a really subtle play beat in there for me? That was the 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 guy holding the child hostage looked at the Boba Fett armor and chose to go after 
that set of armor that Din Jarden had instead, like to demand that piece out of it. It's like, does he know something about that Boba Fett armor? Like it's cursed or Boba Fett's going to come and mess you up or something uh, like that? Because they're all night of the Tatooine, right? They're all supposedly, because you have to really wonder these guys setting such a specific trap. Do they know so the, about the little guy's name? The little guy's name, though, uh, Scrapjaw Motito, if you were wondering, okay. from Force Awakens. I don't know if it's the same guy or the same species. Or the same race, right? Or just the same armor or whatever. I kind of read him as a Jawa, the way he talked and everything. Yeah. I mm-hmm. thought, like, oh, man, imagine you're in an RPG campaign and you were playing a Jawa. This is, like, the upgraded armor your character would want to have, right? Because it looks like a badass uh, Jawa, you know what I mean? So I sort of read him as Jawa. I'm sure he's not, but uh, we definitely do see a guy that looks identical to this uh, in The Force Awakens, which would be like 20 years later, 25 years later, something yeah. like that. And that would be on Jakku, right? Cause right, he was right. A different desert Ridley. planet. Right. But it just makes me think, because the huts are now gone in this. And I know that the the one race, which, forgive me, you might know, Keith, <laughs> the one race, the the one that kind of looks like a transdosian or whatever. The Nikto? Yeah, yeah, because they took over for Jabba. Oh, the, uh, canon. That that race, there was a, a crime syndicate that took over the vacuum of the of Jabba being gone. Yeah, that was like uh, the Lady Valerian, the Whippet or something. And like the old canon was like a competing crime boss in the neighborhood. And then there's like Black Sun and... Uh, there's certainly uh, Crimson Dawn, right? Uh, Darth Maul's groups. There's all yeah. these like weird competing crime interests. Uh, I just have to wonder if they're part of that, like part of the vacuum that's created on Tatooine and they're hunting because they're very specific about getting their hands on the child. Yeah, to me, it, it read as uh, uh, like there are more mercenaries being sent by the Moff and the Imperial mm-hmm. Remnant to locate this child, right? And they're one of the groups that's like been alerted and is on the lookout. Maybe they're, they're local to Tatooine. Obviously there's a Nikto there. That was uh, the Nikto were used heavily by Jabba and his group, but they're like their general scum to stand-ins. Right. So like they could have traveled there specifically thinking they'd find this guy. Uh, or maybe they were just local and looking to trap anything, but recognize it right away. It's hard to say. They, they don't tend to give us a lot of context. They tend to leave just in general in the Mandalorian, right? They leave a lot of stuff open for us to obsess about on shows like this. Yeah. And then, and then they mine it later in a lot right. of cases, yeah. right? Like, like we're going to find out coming up and anybody else with some observations be like, we're even deep diving this far and we yeah. haven't even had the opening credits. <laughs> I have, I, I just want to flag that um, Mandalorian uh, makes that deal. Like he, he makes a deal with the other party and, and, It by taking that is a, a motif for the episode is is keeping or breaking your deals, and mm. I have talked to some other people who are speculating that that's going to be this big theme um, for the entire season, uh, leading up to a what is what is the true Mandalorian code honor system climax at the end of the season with our bald probably Boba Fett from the end of the first episode. 100%, I think uh, they're building towards something like that, right? Because uh, Dave Filoni, who's one of the executive producers on the show, he's directed episodes, he played an X-Wing pilot in this episode, <laughs> uh, again, reprising his role. Uh, but uh, uh, he knows 
the gap between how they're presenting this particular Mandalorian and his covert and how he himself has presented them in both the Clone Wars cartoons and the Rebels cartoons, right? Where they're not afraid to take off their helmets. There's a lot of these cultural taboos aren't present there, Mm -hmm. but this is a separate sort of covert that seems maybe more uh, uh, radicalized or more almost like religious extremists, right? Mm -hmm. And we know Boba Fett isn't like that either, or at least he wasn't raised like that because Jango wasn't like that in episode Mm -hmm. two. Uh, Some sources say they're not Mandalorians at all. I think that's the current canon on it. Uh, but obviously all that's in flux till you see it in a, a source, not necessarily Pablo yeah. tweeting it, right? Pablo can change his mind on a tweet. It's harder once it's in an episode. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think that's retcon city. Right. right. So, like, we'll see what they decide to do. But to me, it feels like we have this pra- pragmatic sort of atheist force in Boba Fett and this, like, religious extremist force in Din Djarin. And they're they're inevitably going to collide at mm. some point, right? That's what we're setting up. So I think that's going to be interesting to see what happens. Does it uh, does it uh, sort of deprogram the Mandalorian where he moves away from the way his covert does things, or is he going to convert Boba Fett and teach him some of you know the the true Mandalorian way, quote unquote? Uh, mm-hmm. But they're definitely, I think they're definitely setting up like how important is it to follow this code? I think you're right. Yeah, and and just to highlight Tyler's point as well, I'm just now thinking about that. And even in the first episode of the season, we had him striking the deal with the marshal, right? Mm-hmm. Like where that, and that was new for this season where he's just like, okay, yeah, all right. Like, let's work this out then. And we don't have to necessarily have this showdown, this fight. Yeah. And obviously it, it crops up later in this episode as well. Uh, So, yeah. So finally we get the, the credits and whatnot oh no i have one more observation oh too. sure like one little logistical thing that that occurred to me as i was uh, re-watching it right before earlier today uh he walks into town with this stuff on his back and the whole time i'm thinking like bro you got a jetpack like yeah we just spent like a whole minute and a half watching you use a jet i just flying it down so i i understand there's like a cinematic like all oh, this long trudge and it's nightfall now in the town but part of me was just like why didn't we just skip that entirely or like use the jetpack, bro? Yeah, on, on that, I wondered, because like you said, in Clone Wars, they're whipping around with the jetpacks and they are like, I can do anything. Right. Um, Even uh, uh, in season one of The Mandalorian, when, when he looks out the window of the, yeah. the Razor Crest, he's like, I got to get one of those. Like, yeah. dude's flying like with him toward orbit. Yeah. So, oh, exactly. And, and maybe he's not as well trained because we also look at Boba Fett and him use it more similarly where it's like you're jumping more than right. yeah fair like it could be a training thing it could be mm-hmm. i mean there's reasons they could invent right like oh it was almost yeah. out of fuel or something like that but uh yeah uh, my mind was going there because it quite literally picks up at the end of the marshall episode so i'm just wondering with how much use he's been getting out of it he literally had a second one though too yeah like he literally had Boba Fett's there as well. Like, I don't know. It's just, and maybe that one was out of it or broken because Han Solo bashed it with a, uh, yeah. And even he, or whatever. he yeah. did that, that little push on it to get Timothy Oliphant. Right. Right. They referenced there, right? that, right? Like, yeah, yeah, the jetpacks are maybe a little fragile, but mm-hmm. yeah. But yeah. And, sorry. That was my last. Oh no. And my observation as observation. well for this episode is in the last episode, we saw them use the IMAX cameras on the big action scenes. I did take a quick advanced scroll through the episode and they never once broke into that wider angle 
So the whole episode is shot with the with the wide letterbox bars. So I'm I'm gonna find that that's a very interesting thing to keep my eye on as a as a beat during the season. So it, it's something that to me is a very telling thing from the visual storytelling that they're doing. So yeah. So Boris, you have anything? Yeah. Um, basically, or? can you guys hear me? Yeah. All right. You're so there, one right? of the main themes that I kind of saw throughout the episode was kind of like fatherhood. Um, you know, we're kind of seeing our friendly Mandalorian kind of and, and baby Yoda, um, the child, kind of continue this bond. Um, you know, I feel like the child is kind of creating its own character. Um, you know, I know we're going to talk about it, but, you know, the whole episode trying to eat the eggs, um, trying to kind of be mischievous like a child. Um, you know, it kind of reminds me of the type of relationship that uh, Rocket and Groot have. Um, but it's kind of like this fatherly type of relationship that they're having. And I think hand in hand with kind of making deals and seeing what, the Mandalorian and what the Creed and what all of this is about. I kind of feel like, you know, he's kind of now exploring the universe, shaping his, his, his thoughts. And I think we're going to really see a lot of, um, you know, changes throughout this season with, with, you know, our, our, our lead protagonist. Yeah. And, and this opening scene actually did start to really illustrate the bond between the child and, and the Mandalorian, like the way that it really moves towards Din Jarden. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there's a whole bunch of stuff there where your heart is like a little bit like, oh, they've got that bond. It's and he's more mobile, the child, in this season so far than he has been really in anything of the first season. In the first season he really was a puppet and a pram. Yeah. He really was. This one he's he's actually moving. Like he's yeah. he's actually more money, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> new toys CG, uh component yeah yeah or they might have just built something under it that'll let it roll and sort of wobble as it does yeah and you know what they're masters it's lucasfilm like the tell signs are never going to be there because I, I was carefully looking at the tracks just wondering am i going to see little yoda feet or is it it was just mostly drag marks and whatnot right. but uh, at some point we got to get the troglodyte uh tracks in the snow it would have been nice right yeah even exactly. though it's weird that there's fresh powder inside a cave system, but you know that's that's details. Okay. Details. That's, Come on, know, we're going for a feeling. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> Might have tumbled in from an you know. I'm sure we can invent the reason, but. Uh. uh so we have we have the Mandalorian heading back in now to the tattoo to Moss Eisley, and reading uh, re meeting up with the mechanic, and she's having a card game with Doctor Mandible. Who I was uh, saying earlier was in episode five last year. He was in the background along yep. with our little uh, future passenger um, was in the cantina. It was kind of nice to see the cantina again. I, I, I just feel that it's all a marketing thing to get the Lego cantina set sold. <laughs> I was literally about I to feel say like that. that. You got to remember, I think Favreau is not quite the fan that maybe Dave Filoni is. So I, I, that's why I feel like their partnership works so well because Favreau really understands the casual Star Wars audience and what touchstones they're going to find cool and need. And Filoni sort of understands the deep cut audience and what they're going to want. So I think the canteen is one of those things that's like instantly recognizable. And, and, you know, they already have the set digitally or 
fully yeah. built that they could reassemble. It's like it's a cost saving thing to reuse yeah. the set anyway, right? Oh, I get uh, it. Like, and yeah. who doesn't want to play in the cantina? I'm sure just as directors and actors, everybody wants to be in there, right? Uh, but there are so many cool Easter eggs in there, uh, which I could list for like a while. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, like, you know, the most obvious being in the booth. Yeah. Right. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Just being in like, yeah, a booth, of course. I think, uh, yeah. but even the, the droid bartender, that's, uh, I guess it's literally EV 99 from Jabba's palace, the droid torturer, yeah. uh, from return of the Jedi. Like that's the job he found after. So we get EV 99 again. Uh, uh, the, uh, R five Skippy, the Jedi droid, he's there with, uh, the mechanic. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. and then, uh, uh, the alien, Dr. Mandible, uh, they don't, I looked around online to see if anybody was like calling it what the species was, but, uh, there is a praying mantis species we see in a new hope. We just sort of see part of it, like in one of the crowd shots, like crossing a street or something. And you're like, that just looks like a giant praying mantis. Cause you know, their budget back then, but uh, uh, it is a callback to something that existed in, in the Moss Eisley uh, footage in a new hope. And uh, um, that species was sort of uh, uh, called the Fratics. They make Bacta and Bacta is something they definitely reference. Uh-huh. Uh, in season one, right? They spray the back of the Mandalorian's head with it. The droid does IG-11. Uh, so the, the Vractics are the species like their homeworld on Thyfera. They make they make the Bacta. They're the people who make the Bacta. So this is like a big picture sort of Star Wars thing for the, the canon lore nerds that like really know stuff, but that's not really ever spelled out in a movie. Yeah. But it, you know, it's important in the books because Bacta is a real vital resource, right? Yeah. So Dave Filoni certainly knows about all of this sort of stuff. And uh, uh, Dr. Mandible looks identical to uh, uh, the Vratics and the Thyferans. They just look like giant, usually black praying mantises. Uh, and uh, so it was cool to see one of those sort of moving and living and existing and, and probably not cheap, which just shows no. you that uh, the money they're saving using the volume is being spent. We're seeing it on camera elsewhere, right? Uh, so that, you know, because it looked great. Uh, so that yeah. was exciting. And they're also playing Sabacc, right? There's an Idiot's yeah. Array is the best hand you could get in Sabacc. So uh, seeing an actual game of that happening uh, post-Solo was really cool. Yeah. Uh, and in the bar, there's also uh, a big white shaggy creature that you might have noticed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is uh, the same species as uh, Maroff from uh, uh, Rogue One. They're, Rogue uh, One, yeah. They're Gigorans or Gigorans, however you want to pronounce it which is like a way old deep cut from the West End Games RPG where they got invented. And uh, I actually did some writing not too long ago in the Dawn of Rebellion book that explored the species and, and added it to, uh, uh, to the Fantasy Flight Games RPG, which was fun to do. Uh, so, you know, that, that was cool. And, and there I think I uh, uh, had some sort of tie to Hondo Anako was trying to sell them as a uh, uh, rare albino Wookiee labor or something like that, knowing <laughs> that that's not what they actually are, which is a very Hondo sort of thing to do. But uh, yeah, uh, yeah man, like the cantina just on its, on the face of it has so many cool uh, deep cuts and references. And, and as we know, the way the rest of the episode is where it's really like in a small little bottle, like you got to get them in early, I guess. Yeah. It, it's funny though, too, with Dr. Mandible, it, kind of made me laugh because the director of this episode did ant-man one and two yeah uh, <laughs> so oh I, true also an insect reference right yeah i was thinking about of... that ant playing the drums right <laughs> and everything yeah. like that and i'm like that's oh, hilarious into it <laughs> i didn't even put that together that's clever yeah one thing uh, that i want to touch on though is something that 
um, Keith, you touched on. And that's kind of like, you know, the partnership between Dave Filoni and John Favreau, um, you know, and that's the, the balance between, and it's something that I think that they've done masterfully. It's that balance between your regular audience trying to capture a new generation of people to watch this um you know trying to sell new subscriptions because hey this is new star wars word of mouth etc and then you know you have all your nods and your references and everything that like you know we are talking about that we're going to be talking about you know so and i think that they've done a great job of that because a lot of these easter eggs they're just that they're easter eggs in the background it's not really too in your face but it's giving us look we're already on 24 minutes of talking about this and we're in the first five minutes of the show um so you know for me that just goes shows you that they're doing such a great job of kind of marrying you know the new fans and the old fans and giving us both something that we can enjoy and talk about and tyler knows this because he's sort of worked in this this uh uh ip writing industry as well right like it's an extra step of effort to uh reference something like that and so, so I think a lot of people who do it uh, in film or in books or whatever it is you're creating, right? Uh, there, there's like this this uh, uh, desire to sort of like, well, give it as much time as you can to fully explain it and all that. And Dave Floney and Favreau are smart in that they don't. They just like, it's there. We're not really going to spend time telling you about it. We're just going to move on. They didn't even say, hey, this is Boba Fett's armor. Yeah. There could have easily been a line, you know, last episode. There could have easily been a line of dialogue in there. It's like, oh, my God, this armor belonged to Boba Fett. It's famous armor or whatever. And they, they didn't do that. They just, and they assumed, you know what, you're going to you're gonna know or you're going to find out. That's exactly. Like, and I kind of appreciate that a little more um, because it's, it, it always makes me laugh, like, when they throw in a line, like, oh, let me explain this really fast for you. You know, it's it's it kind of takes you out of it, especially if you do know. And if you don't know, you know, I'm captivated. I want to keep watching. I want to, you know, keep spending my time in this universe. So I think they're right. just doing a great job of kind of finding that middle ground for old and new fans. 100%. I think some of that comes from George Lucas, too, uh, in Filoni's sort of tutelage under him. Because Lucas is famous for packing the background with, like, just interesting things yeah. that he's just not going to spend time explaining or doing any of that with right exactly. Whereas maybe someone like favreau who's a more casual fan is going to want to be like no 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 we have to tell everybody we have to make sure and phony's probably like no george would say don't yeah and it also gives the casual fan when they find out there's deeper cuts in some of this stuff it gives them an opportunity to go revisit it or watch for the first time sure Wars, but she catches the hype of the mandalorian she starts watching it and then she's like um i gotta ask uncle phil you know like what the hell is this and what the hell is that and i'm like oh, okay well here you go kid yeah here's the keys to the car go have fun you know play in the star wars universe and and uh you're gonna get an experience uh, yep, that's exactly that. it I love it for the, yeah. for that very reason. It it just adds so much to it. Um, you know, it's it brings families together. <laughs> Baby Yoda giving uncles and nieces something to bond over since exactly. 2019. Yeah. <laughs> and now we have the toys. <laughs> so, yeah, so we we basically set up the introduction now for this lizard lady. Um, who apparently has information on other Mandalorians, which ironically is in the system and transport is needed. 
you know, as they cook the the meat on the uh, the pod racer engine. Very uh, uh, <laughs> Disney-esque. And also uh, uh, a thing they, I guess, is physically present in the Galaxy's Edge theme park. Yes. Yeah, it's a, that's what my reference was. Very Disney. <laughs> because they do that as a cooking mechanism in the Galaxy's Edge experience. So we've got we've got that whole setup again with those deep nods and uh you know just the idea that there's conditions on this transportation he's got to transport the passenger hence the title he's got to transport the passenger's stuff which is the eggs and the the key to this whole thing is we can't go into light speed and the funny thing is is that when you see the lizard lady going onto the razor crest if you watch in the background the child is chasing enthusiastically after the eggs. Yep. Sure. <laughs> He's like right up on that. Like, oh yeah, I want to get with these eggs. <laughs> There's like that moment, right? That shot where you could see his eyes, the child's eyes lighting up at the eggs. Like, like they just saw like a golden, like idol or something like that. Like they're yeah. very yeah interested from the word. Like I'm going to eat that. <laughs> yeah. And the funny thing is, is that if you watch the first um, trailer, you can see that the eggs are present in that ocean world that they go to, which is obviously going to be next episode. Uh, so Hawkeye's out there, take a look at the trailer situation. And I think, you know, you're going to find that most of that trailer was exactly what I was thinking. It was the first three episodes of the Mandalorian were heavily cut from that. And goodness knows what the heck we're in for for the rest of these episodes once we get past that as far as content. So we also get, we also get our first Appa of the episode um, because the person who voices the frog also voiced Appa from Avatar The Lost Airbender. Yep. <laughs> nice. Was it nice. the frog lady? I thought that was the actor uh, oh, that just, plays the other X-Wing pilot. No, no, there's two Appas. Oh. Yeah, then he's Appa from Kim's Convenience. Right. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the episode really? of Two Appas. Yeah. D. Bradley Baker voiced right. the frog lady. Also, and also I didn't know it was him. Appa. He also voices like all the clones in the Clone Wars. Oh. Like him and Dave Floney are bros. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah he, and. He, sorry, it's it, uh, acted by the person who did um, Queel last season. That's the person in the. Oh, the, the, the person. In the, sure. Yeah doing the the body work it's awesome so yeah so lots of lots of callbacks and whatnot frog lady so, species itself is kind of interesting because we don't we never get told what the species is and this character apparently was wandering in the background somewhere in season in episode one as five. Well. yeah, yeah episode five in the cantina uh so probably looking for a ride right probably been looking for a ride yeah. uh because as we all know, everyone on Tatooine goes to that cantina to find pilots, right? That's yep. where the best yeah, ones in the galaxy are, according to Obi-Wan Kenobi. Exactly. Listen to Obi-Wan, you must. So, uh, uh, But her species is interesting because it's like it's this aquatic frog-like species of which we've seen a couple uh, in the Star Wars movies and stuff like that. And she, her face bears a striking resemblance to the uh, the Force Nuns in uh, uh, The Last oh, Jedi. The her face is... Almost identical, uh, not yeah. quite. The big difference is the legs. See, those guys have like uh, the nuns have really bird-like, thin, skinny legs, and she obviously has uh, legs that can propel her to jump like a frog. Uh, so I don't think they're the same species, but they could be related. And uh, 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 the other 
uh, thing I draw a connection to just because of stuff I've worked on is uh, uh, there's a race called the Drabatons that were introduced in uh, uh, Rogue One, the frog guy with the giant mouth. Mm-hmm. And we've never seen a female one. Pow's really the only Drabaton we've ever seen. But when I was creating like their lore and because, uh, you know, there was I was one of the first writers that to get to sort of expand on what they do for an RPG. Uh, and there hadn't really been anything written about it. It was cool. We got like this big secret packet from uh, LFL about information ahead of Rogue One's release to write the book. And uh, uh, there just wasn't much. There was like three sentences of lines about the Drabatans. And one of the things I said was like, they lay little eggs. They lay a bunch of eggs in like a pond and tadpoles hatch. And, you know, that's sort of their life cycle, right? Because they're frogs. And uh, uh, so it seems like we're getting something sort of similar life cycle wise here. There's a bunch of unfertilized eggs. She's trying to go somewhere with the right water conditions to actually like leave them in the water to hatch. Uh, but they have to be fertilized first, obviously, by the husband. They're unfertilized eggs. So we don't have to get too angry about the child chomping on some of them, right? <laughs> Same as eating a chicken egg that's unfertilized, right? Mm-hmm. Allegedly. Now, but, uh, if you watch the trailer for the first trailer, you'll see the husband from the back. He's quite a bit taller and he's green from the looks of it. Okay. So, so it, it's like an aqua green. It, it's almost like your shirt that you're wearing now. I'm going to have to go back and look, because I'm very curious if they're, maybe they're Drabans, but or they're related somehow between mm-hmm. uh, some of these. And the females and males just look drastically different, which mm-hmm. is not unprecedented. Uh, like Gungans have two obviously very different sort of morphologies, uh, but they're the same species, right? Uh, so I, I'll be curious to see what they do with that next week. Uh, although... They did say in the episode that Trask is the only world where they can sort of lay these eggs, yeah. right? The only place where the environment is right. So it, based on that alone, like probably not the Drabatans, unless we're going to take that to mean the only place nearby, right? I uh, just think they watched a lot of those Geico commercials. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and another interesting point comes up in the, the dialogue in this scene uh, about the Mandalorian's covert. I listened to your guy's episode last week and you sort of question like is he just looking for any mandalorian or a specific one uh and here we sort of the mandalorian asks if they were the ones from his planet before right so that sort of tells us he's specifically looking for survivors Navarros. Of, yeah. of the navarro covert right he's looking specifically for for survivors which also suggests that tatooine is maybe geographically close by to navarro right like this would be a place mm-hmm. they would come. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and Makes and sense. as well because of that first trailer, we know that we might see Sabine there. We just don't know if that's her, <laughs> right? So I'm down to see Sabine for sure. Yeah. So is that the Mandalorian that that the 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 frog people are referencing, right? Right. So or her it, people. It, like, there's a lot of possibilities, right? And we yeah. know, don't we know, Katie Sackhoff is. Surprising yep. her role as Bo Tan yep. as well, which is interesting. So yep. I'm very excited to see where they go and how quickly they get there, right? Yeah, yeah. it's gonna be bat crap insane. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. I know I know this this episode gets panned on the internet so far as being filler, but I think we're already displaying the fact that I don't think it's very filler. <laughs> I there's think a there's lot a lot of stuff of character dropped. stuff happening here, and there's a lot of deep cuts as far as the canon of it, <laughs> as, as we're finding out yeah. here. It would be, uh, so, it would be a filler episode. Side, oh, oh. Sorry, go ahead. 
I was just going to say, it's it would be a filler for someone who watches the episode not really knowing much of the Star Wars lure. Um, you know, one of those quote-unquote newer viewers. Um, I can see it like they say, oh, you know, we're on our mission. We have to stop by this planet and, you know, stuff happens. So I can kind of see both sides of the argument. Um, but no, I for me, I feel like this episode was really just building that foundation for the next two or three episodes. Mm-hmm. If you look at the second episode of season one, the, uh, the Jawa Sandcrawler episode, the egg, uh, this mm-hmm. feels very similar to that episode, right? Exactly. Uh, like in a lot of ways. And uh, I will admit when season one was new and it, I was watching it one episode at a time, I was very frustrated with the, the bottle episodes or the filler episodes, whatever you want to call them, where it doesn't feel like we're really advancing the core plot. I was frustrated with them also in season one. But uh, uh, a little while ago, just ahead of season two, I binged all of season one, and I loved those episodes. Like when you're seeing them all mm-hmm. in context, rapid fire, they were some of my favorites because there's there is interesting stuff happen. They are laying groundwork that just feels like filler. Like uh, the it's not the reek. What do they call it? The mudhorn creature. Uh, yeah. uh, like that comes back up again a few times. Uh, stuff with this relationship between uh, the the child and the Mandalorian comes into play with Queel, like there, there's a lot of interesting stuff that's happening in episode two that feels like filler in the moment, but, but that does come back around later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also like, it's just borrowing from like those old wild West serial TV shows. That's like mm-hmm. one of the, the prime sources for exactly. the show, right. Or influences. And, and that the, the classic Western story is a man comes to town and then at the end, he, like he leaves. So like they, they were all built as bottle episodes for those kinds of things. So I think we have to give them permission to to do that for a third yeah. or half the episodes, right? Exactly. They just learn to enjoy it. Yep. Uh, and yeah. I enjoyed this one immensely. I thought it was super well executed. Yep. I I am in agreement, Tyler. You have anything? I, you all have you all have done that this section with pretty heavy and well trod. <laughs> I'm like I don't have a ton to add. I I. I guess I'm going to continue going back to like the the high level themes of we're continuing to work in this kind of larger. It's kind of a larger two set of themes that are going on throughout the show that we're seeing again here, and it's it's very much what is parenthood, um, and and what does it mean to be a good parent versus a bad parent? And I think that early on it was it was kind of like a weird disconnect because there's a lot of like the child's requirements of like what does he eat were early on very much hand waved away. Um, but now we're going into it. Now we're like, oh, geez. And, and like he said, you know, how much are we caring versus like <laughs> each one of these could be a kid. Um, right. And and this this other side of playing with the nature versus nurture, because we've seen the child use force choke on someone and we've seen the child do some pretty heinous acts for reasonable reasons. Yeah. Um, which is interesting. And And we're building on that here of, you know, what part of a deal is worth it and and that mirror yeah Yeah, just playing off what you're saying i think like uh, a lot of the show is about how does having a child change your own morality and how you behave right Bingo. because you see a few times the mandalorian is ready to do what he normally would do and be like look that wasn't part of the deal we're just going to get off this planet if we can but then he looks over at the kid when she's giving him you know the guilt trip and he's like oh man I should set a good example. Like there's, there's clearly a moment, even though we can't see his face, we know, 
we can extrapolate so much of this, which speaks to the the weird performance that it must be for poor uh, you know, Pedro Pascal underneath yeah. Uh, yeah. all that armor to to deliver any of that like sort of nuance to through all of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's doing a phenomenal job because I think we're getting a lot of emotion through someone who has no face to work nothing, with. Nothing, so. nothing to give us. Just <laughs> yeah, all, yeah. like, he's like, a, I'm sure he took a mime class or something before this, just because right? all you have is body language, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the, the funny thing is, is that all the rumors suggested that, that Pedro Pascal was really upset with not being able to take his helmet off. And I can tell you, after watching the first episode, that that one scene where Timothy Oliphant just takes his helmet off and is like, it's like, here, no. have a drink. It's like, that's got to be like, oh, screw this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, and his hair is perfect. <laughs> uh, which actually, off, I, I was terrible. <laughs> there's a, a, I don't know how big Star Wars fans you guys were in the 90s, the mid sort of 90s. It was kind of a small time for the fandom. But uh, there was a series of tops trading cards that were yes. released, sort of like looking into all the different elements of Star Wars. And there was one, and it was like the first time as a fandom we'd ever seen this. There was one image of Boba Fett with his helmet off. And uh, it's this alien creature, but with like white sort of slicked back hair that looks almost identical to Timothy Oliphant's hair in the episode. I thought it was a, <laughs> a neat sort of clever little nod to a trading card that was sort of like infamous among the fandom just because it was the first time you ever saw Boba Fett officially with the helmet off. Obviously, Hilarious. canon has changed since then. But <laughs> Yeah, so we're going to march it forward. So we've got him basically taking this new lizard person to Trask, the destination planet. And yeah, I did make a note here that the lizard lady looks like a caretaker from Last Jedi, and I had to watch rewatch last jedi and do some side-by-side -side comparisons but the eyes are a little feet. different you caught and, the feet and the feet yeah yeah but you know it's still interesting nonetheless as well we we get in the ship we get basically the child going to those eggs i found that this was a very interesting audio cue is the child's new theme i guess there's some new instruments and some oh. new real uh evocative music that departs from the tones that we've heard in the first season. And I, I, I did forget to mention this in the first episode analysis that I found that the music, especially with the guitar and whatnot being added is giving the Mandalorian here a little bit of an edge. And I just find that it's really enhancing my mood while I'm watching it. It's affecting the way that I'm perceiving these interactions because the music gets really light. And the child puts his hand up to the glass, and the eggs start kind of coming to it. I wasn't sure if he's using the force here mm -hmm. or what's going on with that egg thing. I assume there had to be some force going on just because, like, it seemed like that was a locked container at yeah. some point, yeah. right? Yeah. So I feel like the lock got forced, and now it's, like, easy to open and close. But mm -hmm. Yeah, and naturally the little scamp, like... We, we basically get into a situation where, you know, I don't know if it's at this point or not. I can't recall now, and I apologize. But we start to see, you know, the child being very obsessed with the eggs. He's obviously not consumed one yet. Mm -hmm. um, but then we get basically the big scene for me, uh, you know, not being a huge creature guy, but 
respecting the crap out of it for Star Wars and becoming appreciative of it um, was basically the uh, the X-Wing scene. The X-Wings oh. come up and we have Carson Teva uh, and Trapper Wolf, which, you know, basically are Paul Sun, Hyundai Lee and Dave Filoni. Um, Alpha number two. Yeah, and Dave reprising his role after watching Disney Gallery, he seemed to be very reluctant to even adopt this character. And it seemed to be a bet between the directors about, you know, like a game of chicken. Who's going to show up on set and actually shoot this? And uh, I could only imagine the cajoling that, that had to go on with John Favreau to get yeah. Dave to go into this. But, I think there uh, were so many ties between this episode and the other one he was in. Like, it sort of made a weird sort of sense, right? Exactly, because really it came down to, you know, Dave Filoni's, like, Trapper Wolf calling out the fact that he's seen the ship before. Right. Because that's kind of the subtext of it. So they needed one of the three. Yeah, so they needed one of the three, and obviously uh, Deborah, she's doing Obi-Wan and probably consumed with that. And uh, yeah, so he was the easiest one, I guess, to put in the. He was already there on set, I'm guessing. Yeah, exactly. So (laughs) it's it's kind of a fun linkage, like you're pointing out, because we also see that that droid, right? The uh, naturally the infamous droid that Mando hates, right? He's kind of still uh, laying there. The the guy from from the the IT IT crowd. crowd. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) exactly. There it is. Yeah. So we see that one there too, which obviously really highlights. I was just waiting for some of the the characters that you know possibly reveal that they escaped the firebomb at the end or something like that, or maybe some people escaping prison and cropping up in this episode as well. But obviously, it never transpired. Uh, so and some other interesting things, though, uh, in that really dense moment, though, Trapper Wolf, uh, Dave Filoni's character name is a reference to the wolf pack, which uh, mm-hmm. Plo Koon, I don't know if you guys know the story, but Plo Koon is Dave Filoni's favorite, favorite, favorite Star Wars character, like ever, 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 other than, you know, maybe once he's created. Uh, he loves Plo Koon so much. And when he was interviewing for the job to get uh, the Clone Wars cartoon, uh, he was already a massive fan, but didn't want to tell them that because he figured he'd weird him out and they wouldn't give him the job. But he uh, had a full body Plo Koon, like cosplay costume, in his like home at that point already like he was already that big a fan he's like oh man you know i'm really excited but i better not tell them this because like they'll never give me the job if they know i'm going to geek out over everything uh which seems a little counterintuitive maybe but your judgment could come into question if you can't make sort of like uh Mm -hmm. intellectual decisions editorial decisions about something which again tyler i'm sure is very familiar with uh yep being able to have that distance to like love star wars and work on it or love any ip and then work on it you have to be able to like set your nerd brain aside a little at a certain point of the process, just so that you can make the best choice for the story, even though it might cut one of your favorite references or things or something like that. But yeah, so that his character's name, Trapper Wolf, is 100% like this subtle reference to uh, uh, the, hit the Clone War troop called the, the Wolf Pack that was Plo Koon's sort of uh, clone detachment. And I think uh, I was looking online and somebody pointed out there's a Wolf Pack uh, patch from the Clone Wars, like on his uh, uh, uniform, like, somewhere, uh, which which might suggest that there's more backstory to that character than we think. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe he has some sort of Clone Wars history or something, right? But the other interesting, like, narrative point that might come up later is that Mando's owed three bounties worth of money from uh, uh, mm-hmm. 
from season one. So if he's down and out and broke later, you might think like, oh, well, he can get some money from the New Republic at some point if need be, right? Unfortunately, he'd be wanted himself, even though yeah, he didn't ultimately, like, they, they make that distinction, right? Where right. they're, like, settling that bet or that, that, that issue or trying to, I guess, where they're like, well, you did kind of mess up our prison. You did kind of, like, we're, we're really happy that you tried to save that guy because we have the right. video footage. But right. he's dead. <laughs> Not by your hand, but you definitely were in on something bad. <laughs> so get a transponder. Uh, that that is true and transponders themselves are another thing that's explored in the old rpgs Mm -hmm. uh quite a bit because it's something you want to like tweak or hide if you're a smuggler or something Mm -hmm. like that which a lot of the games sort of explore so it's nice to see like little mechanical tidbits like that come up from time to time yeah and i know that there's deep analysis going on on the markings of the tie fighter or the x-wings sure you know it says rescue on them and there's about uh seven tie fighters emblazoned on trapper wolf's cockpit oh. which denotes that he's already a status so yeah, or, or the seven seasons of the clone wars maybe yeah that's, <laughs> that's, that could be both <laughs> yeah, yeah and deep, deep cuts dave filoni is a huge wolf fan right like like let's not forget rebels <laughs> let's not forget right. like all the deep deep cuts that you know he's he's always got that wolf shirt in his closet <laughs> i know it so like yeah, the three so... wolves howling at the moon, right? Exactly. <laughs> the other yeah. really cool part about this is we are getting kind of this this idea that we're starting to explore more of like what is the actual difference between this government after the empire and the empire and then what the the new order is proposing later on. Transition and... government, life in the new republic, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, and I get that's that, that can be pretty boring stuff, especially for like your tentpole you know, movie, but bringing it up in these shows is a great way to do it and see like, yeah, they're just like two beat cops doing the rounds. This is the thing Dave Filoni cares about, though. Uh, And and we know this because he uh, pulled out Cobb Vanth of of all people from the the lore, who's a character who appeared in a novel originally uh, by Chuck Wendig, the Aftermath book, right? Which is the whole trilogy of books is like life after the empire fell and the new republic's trying to gain its footing so uh, uh that character was lifted wholesale out of uh, a little interlude from uh, uh the aftermath novel and so so this is clearly like uh part of the era that that Filoni wants to make sure is getting at least some some moments to to give you a sense of how the galaxy is right in addition to like stormtrooper skull, uh, helmets on pikes and stuff like that yeah yep. and it, it's probably the most explorable time period for Disney and, and everybody to, to get into that's going to link. It's going to be that cartilage that goes between the, the originals and the prequels to yeah. the sequel trilogy and whatever else they're going to create in there. You know, Star Wars Resistance yeah. comes to mind on the later part of that. Sure. You know, obviously different audience uh, intended and, for it, but it had merit. And I got to say, you know, there's something to be said about life imitating art with, you know, this transition, the transition government and kind of seeing what happens in between from like, you know, this, um, you know, the empire to what happens after. So it's like, you know, that life imitating art. And I think that will also captivate a lot of uh, viewers and, you know, mm-hmm. people like us. Yeah. It's timely too, given our current political situation exactly. in the world. 
Regime um, changes. Yeah, hopefully we don't have the slavers coming into town like they did in, in, that, in that Tatooine town. Right? It's fair. It's a, a real concern. <laughs> so um, we'll, we'll move along if anybody, unless somebody has uh, something that other insights they'd like to offer. Uh, I just thought the uh, the chase sequence that they oh, had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, yeah. That's uh, moving along. Hey, that's good. Was it was a lot of fun. Uh, it, it, I don't know why I hadn't thought of the the Razor Crest in this way the whole first season and up till now. But when I was seeing the actual, I guess the dogfight you would call it, the chase, mm-hmm. uh, I was reminded a lot of Firefly. It felt very Firefly yeah. to me. We're gonna cut the engines, we're gonna fall, and we're gonna boot them back up and lose them that way. Yeah. Uh, and then the canyon. Uh, if you've ever played a Star Wars video game where you fly a thing, there's almost always a level where you're flying. Beggar's Canyon on Tatooine, right? So that the canyon flight was very sort of, uh, and it's, I mean, it's just a trope in general at this point, right? But uh, but that was fun to see, and they found a sort of cool, inventive way to to get out of it to end it that I hadn't seen before. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I I thought of the Millennium Falcon actually a lot in the sequel trilogy because Han Solo kind of crashes it a lot and slides it. Oh, and, the Razor and Crest can't go five crest. episodes without yeah. crashing, right? It it's and I was um the only part that turned me off in that chase sequence was the sounds that they used on the dive bomb, which are uh you know the, it just felt very um Looney Tunes, like the whole the sound was just overstated about the Razor Crest falling and it's it's like I don't know it felt like a cartoon that 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 marriage it looked good. But it sounded weird. But that's kind of oh, like Star Wars but with that's its Star wipes, Wars. and yeah. It, so I I let go of it pretty quick. But I did kind of cringe. I was like, hey, okay, yeah, I'll give but it. But the pass. visuals were neat, right? We got. Yeah. Uh, I felt like we were in the clouds and Bespin Cloud City. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, at the start of the chase, and then we end up sort of on this uh, Hoth sort of environment uh, once yeah. we finally land, which and with the. Tatooine canyons in between so it was a weird like marriage of star wars environments that is the planet that the mandalorian opened on when he got the blue guy when he trapped him in the first season remember it was an icy planet oh apparently it's the same same one oh yeah so we're talking a very giant creatures yeah yeah we know that this is a bug infested planet and that there's civilization somewhere on it too you know right outposts at least least, right That that bar looks pretty isolated in the grand scheme of things when we saw yep. the wide shot of it, right? So minimal, maybe. Yeah, so maybe maybe Din Jardin had some familiarity with it where he thought, I can get out of this. You know, obviously the surprise was falling through and uh and and crashing the razor razor crest into that. And I know again watching the um the uh uh previews or the uh the the trailer. Seeing it crash there, I assumed that was a Razor Crest because I had just put together the Lego model for the Razor Crest and I saw the markings. So I was like, this has got to be it. But there was a lot of debate on the internet and it looked like I was a little bit scared when I saw it in this episode because I'm like, that doesn't look recoverable. <laughs> like, I they know never, we like in the second things. episode, the same, right? He gets yeah. like the Razor Crest feels like it gets completely taken apart uh, mm-hmm. frequently. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's it speaks to his skills too because immediately like upon waking up he's he's kind of like they're already going with this frost effect right because if you monitor his time on this planet 
the helmet and the armor gets frostier and frostier as it marches on. Yeah. And, um, you know, like his first thing is obviously the panic of wanting to know the child's okay. Right. And he disguises that a little bit with, I'm going to go check for the eggs. Right. You stay here. Yeah. Right. Like, and you could tell his frantic nature was not about the cargo, the eggs as much as it was. Cause for him, the deal's off. Right. That he's just like, all right, so I'm going to go take care of mine. This is that family theme, right? The the father-son thing that we're talking about, the lone wolf and cub. So we got him going down there and finding him. And what's the little scamp doing? He's got his, you know, Snack chompers time. on an egg. Just a little bit of, just a little bit of eating, eating someone's kids. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Potential kids. Unfertilized yeah. eggs, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Not make yeah. him more of a monster than he already is as a, two, you know. Equivalent of a two-year-old, a toddler. Exactly. There is something about this egg consumption, though. If you'll notice, he never chews them. Yeah, Yeah, it's... He inhales them. And he chewed the crap out of the little spider that we're going to get to. But he inhaled the eggs. All of them. And he tried to inhale that frog from uh, season one, right? Yeah, that's true. Didn't didn't quite get it in, but... It's, it's, that's such a classic Star Wars moment too, right? Like, yeah. That's why there's so many that, toys of them already. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's Funko Pops, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's everywhere. So, so yeah. So we get, we get him down there and we get to the eventual scene that, you know, where, where the frog lady, you know, they, they, he goes to sleep and it says, you know, get ready. Here's some blankets, you know, here's your kids or here's your eggs, your unfertilized eggs. And whatnot, and basically says, you know, we got to get out of here, but I, I'm going to get some rest. And then she reprises that robot, the IT crowd robot, yep. <laughs> which yeah. I'm going to call it that. <laughs> and uh, freaks I- him I- out a little bit, you know, because this is one of those things. I really appreciated the fact that she was using it as a translator. Mm-hmm. And Smart. it really, yeah, and it really gave insight to me about the complexity of this character. That, you know, you think that she's like a dumb frog or a, ge- uh, a, a gecko type thing. And then here she is. She's got skills. She definitely has skills. And she does that. And I think it was just really welcome for me because I didn't really like the way that that they do this in Star Wars. And there's no other way around it. And, you know, Han Solo talking to Chewbacca in <laughs> the Wookiee language, um, the 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 mechanic talking to the frog lady. It's hilarious, by the way. Uncomfortable. It, it's, it becomes funny yeah. in that. <laughs> you're Whoa. right. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's hard. I, I think it's probably easier for you with the, with the role-playing games, because that would definitely be a part of it is, you know, in that universe. I was wanting to communicate. I was going to yeah, that... that. There's a great bit in the Star Wars RPG books where it's basically like language translation should only ever come up when it's important to the plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, and moments like this sort of highlight that C-3PO maybe wasn't completely as useless as, as we would imagine watching the original trilogy, right? Like situations do come up where it's like, man, we could do this a lot better if we had a droid. Yeah, and it's kind of funny though too because... Mando constantly refers to the child as if he's got a spoken relationship to him. And really they don't, 
No, I like, think they're kind of figuring it out, right? Yeah. Like, uh, like the child's starting to understand no. Like, we see a few sort of things that the Mandalorian says to it that uh, the child seems to understand, even if the child ignores it completely, yeah, right? exactly. Like, hey, come here, and just wanders off the other direction. Like, he knew. Yeah, yeah. Like taller. Like when you like yell at a cat, and the cat's like, I know what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, it, it's... It's interesting to see that dynamic on screen. It, 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 you know, we know that from the first season, he understands, like the child understands, don't eat the frog. But yet in this episode, he really loves those, those unfertilized eggs. Like, cause he knows he's being bad. Right. <laughs> he, he is mischievous as all hell in this thing. So. Basically. I've never had kids myself, but I, I'm, I'm 11 years older than my youngest brother. And I remember when he was, two and three and like they're tyrants they're little monsters and they also will put almost anything they find in the ground in their mouth as well so like it felt yeah. pretty uh pretty real to me I yeah guess. oh yeah I, I think it was very real but i think it it's it's going to be a payoff down the road there's going to be something i think a little bit further with these eggs and whatnot but maybe not who knows it's just a guess right it's hard That's to say here for so we basically get uh it moves along pretty quick at this point it becomes a star wars thriller it really does uh, uh, this is a tonal change um where we get you know the mando has to find frog lady finds her kind of lounging in the pool with her eggs a hot tub hot spring and naturally the child wanders off and in a very alien-esque way finds these pods on the ground manages to find the one that seems to be dead right like that, that he opens it and it's it's not ready it's not ready for emergence but once he opens that thing holy cow pandora's box because all of them on cue start opening yeah and we get uh probably as a not a big fan of spiders myself probably one of the most terrifying sequences yeah that you can have as a arachnophobic person the crickna, uh, I think they are. So I'm not sure if they, I mean, to me, yeah, I look at those and I'm like, oh, they're like snow crickna, cold crickna or whatever. But they were first introduced in, in Rebels, right? So it's a Dave Floney like sort of creation, sort of, because they're based off of a Dagobah concept art by Ralph McQuarrie, right. uh, who made like this sort of tree species that starts out as a spider and then eventually plants roots and becomes a tree. And you see all these trees in the swamp of Dagobah with like the spider-like legs coming out of it roots yeah, uh, the but then there's a white big... spider it's called so uh uh but uh yeah so it, like it comes from there it's a total deep cut but we did see uh on the planet adalon which is uh featured heavily in rebels is sort of like their base for a few seasons yeah. like they discover these spiders in the tunnels and they're like those ones are semi like blaster proof it would seem but they like feed on fear they like they're attracted to fear uh, which could be saying subtle something subtle about the child, maybe, because uh, yep. there's a force thing going on with these spiders. Uh, but do we get a big one, right? It's another like Mandalorian versus giant creature, which seems mm -hmm. to be a theme of the show in general, because season one, episode one, the, the thing from under the ice tries to latch onto the ship and he has to fight it off to escape, right? And uh, in season two, episode one, the thing comes from under the sand and he has to you know, go and blow up the crate dragon. And yeah, then and he uses two, the same 
the same gun, right? He electrocutes right. it in both both right. of those parallels. And then in season two, it's the same thing. It's a creature in a cave, and we're dealing with eggs. So like, there's there's a lot of like parallel sort of circular stuff happening in the construction of the season, which which might just be fun for Dave Filoni and John Favreau, or it might be like a hint to where things are going and where else can you look mm-hmm. for a structure like that to sort of mimic and parody itself. Yeah, for sure. And what were those spiders called from Rebels? Krikna. Krikna. There we go. Like K-R-Y-K-A, something like that. K-N-A. Nice. K-N-A. Oh, there it is, yeah. So I actually <laughs> had to write about them as well. Dawn of Rebellion Sourcebook was like our, our Rebels uh, yep. source book for the RPG and Dave Floney wrote a really nice forward for the book and everything. And that's where like, oh, this episode just weirdly has a lot of connections to that uh, uh, book that I worked on a few, a few years back, long before the Mandalorian was more than I'm sure loose conversations at Lucasfilm, which I yeah. would in no way whatsoever be involved in, obviously as mm-hmm. a lowly freelancer, but, but there's just a lot of cool uh, uh, connections of Dave drawing on his own work from rebels and the Clone Wars, and that's stuff that we had to explore pretty heavily for that book. Yeah, it's it's not coincidence, <laughs> you right, know. Right. That, that hallmark is there because the uh, the Kobe White Spider that everybody seems to really lean on in in the internet world is not really. There's nothing more about it. You know what I mean? And and this I think fits the context of what we're talking about, and maybe the motives of these spiders and whatnot because they feed on fear. Because, they, you know, it's consistent with what the storytelling is that's already there that Dave's explored and wants to explore further in a cinematic it, way, right? And created, right? So it's not like he doesn't know this stuff or like, like he yeah. would have to do research to know this stuff. This is stuff he made up. So he's intimately familiar with uh, what they are, what they do, how they work, and, and what the intent was when he was putting them in the earlier episodes as well. So the fact that they're in tunnels near water, like... On the planet yeah. Adelon, which is the big coral reef sort of planet, where you know coral reef is on a desert world, standing up like trees. And there, they're in these subterranean tunnels, feeding on little snail guys. Here, we're not seeing what they're feeding on. Presumably, something down there. But uh, our mm-hmm. heroes are there to be a potential snack, right? And we get one giant big one, which is fun. Yeah, and they look pretty hungry. <laughs> I gotta say, they look pretty uh- hungry. <laughs> So, and, uh, and they looked awesome. Like it's yeah. rare to see something make the transition from animation to live action, uh, like that. Uh, I don't think it just happens that often. And it was uh, to me, it was really interesting to see how he envisioned them looking as a more live action looking creature. It's similar to, I guess, episode uh, chapter three with the lost cat. Yeah, same thing. You know what right? I mean? Like that was a big moment for me. Because I'm like, well, here's something that I see almost regularly in Rebels, which I invested heavily in. Which is a great show. Yeah, I just tuned out the world and was like, this is where I'm going. Like, this is my Star Wars. Like, this is my jam. So the Lothcat and that, and then seeing it in the physical world, was was really eye-opening for me. And I just, yeah, it got got me a little bit in the feels. (laughs) <laughs> so and the lost cat was a, a little jarring i didn't expect its head to be quite so large and spherical yeah in line was, like that literal. felt like creative license right but it was like no 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 they have giant pac-man heads and get ready for it but, uh, <laughs> exactly it was almost too literal right yeah <laughs> but th- this uh, one i feel like they did an amazing job sort of converting it to yeah. uh, a live action thing because if you'd never seen the cartoon i don't think 
you would think they looked odd. Whereas if you look at the Lothcat, you might be like, that's a weird looking thing, but cute. Yeah. Yeah. And it's definite that they modeled it after Ralph McQuarrie's, you know, that live action look. Like, I, it, at no point in this thing's life could I see it becoming a tree. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's, <true. laughs> that's that's my argument about that because I'm like, uh, it definitely wasn't that that what everybody's sourcing as the source material just for looks. And it's a terrifying right. creature, right? With that mandible thing coming the out. Maw, with the teeth. Yeah. It almost reminds you of um the uh 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 the, the creatures from Empire Strikes Back. Oh, the Minox, God. sure. The Minoc, yeah, but it had yeah. sort of leeching on the cockpit window. It's definitely yeah. like a temporary callback. And they did such a a great job with like the subtle effects. When the thing puts its mouth on there, like the glass fogs up because mm-hmm. the top breath comes out, like such cool little attention to like just detail to make it all feel real. Right. Yeah. And yeah. and what a sequence, you know, leading up to that, the chase, the fire, everything, the fire. right? Like like yeah. this thing you could feel the tension and you could feel like how the hell are they gonna get out of this? And then it gets worse, right? With with the appearance of this giant thing. And then from out of nowhere, off screen, we just see the flash of red blasters. And we hear it. You yeah, know the sound. Yeah. And it it's just I don't know. It was like one of those really, truly happy moments that this show is able to produce out of fans where, you know, like you, you, you see the, the connective tissue again, Trapper Wolf and, and, you know, the same X-Wing pilots are there liberating them. And it it was so hard to see with the lights as well. It was deliberately like hidden from you at first. And you're wondering what the actual hell is going on. And then, I'm sure a lot of people are like, Boba Fett? Where? Where? Because, <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, who exactly. else would be following this guy, right? Like, what? It... Yeah. And they're all crack shots, which you have to wonder, is it a like, slight dig at, like, how bad stormtroopers were? <laughs> yeah. They're true, right? With the rifles? Yeah. Although, like, definitely they were firing the X-Wing laser cannons first at the big one. That's what put yeah, down the big one. Like, you could hear the noise change, right? Yeah. 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 And, and, yeah, and, and some of those spiders... Pretty bloody tiny, like you know what I mean. And, and fresh hatchlings, man. Yeah, it's amazing. Paul Lee just just taking them out, taking them out, and yeah. And then we we basically see Mando repair the ship enough, uh, tell them that we can't, you know, we have to be in the cockpit. There's no the hull's basically breached. So here we go, and they trottle off and somehow manage to get atmosphere. And it leaves us exactly again where the trailer one shows us going over the gas giant with the damaged razor crest and two, the, the world, the destination world Trask. So yeah, I, 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 I can see how this all knits together. Mm-hmm. I can see, you know, the continuity that Dave and John are really achieving this season and the storytelling and how it's going to be a, a great, continuous watch through uh when it's all you know finally in our possession to binge <laughs> and obsessive even more <laughs> yeah absolutely so yeah that's our that's uh basically the play-by-play do we have any final thoughts everybody i give you the floor <laughs> uh, i thought final? it was really interesting the conversation between the mandalorian and the rebel pilots or the new republic pilots sorry reach this sort of understanding, right? This is something definitely drawn from Westerns, right? Where the outlaw and the lawman sort of 
come to an understanding in the interest of a greater good of some kind, right? And this is uh, now the second example of that in the season, right? So it's like, you know, our outlaw is constantly going out, making friends, kind of going against what we would assume would be his natural tendencies. Um, so, you know, it's just interesting that in the first two episodes, it's like he does this um, team up, you know, so to speak. Right. So yeah. uh, in season one, certainly we see him do something similar with Quill and uh, uh, Cara Dune. Yeah. And uh, uh, like he makes these friends and then we're going to get everybody together in the finale to help him achieve something larger than he can on his own. Right. Yeah. So uh, yeah. Making friends is, uh, it seems to be a theme of the show, right? Even in these allegedly like bottled episodes that don't feel like they're contributing to the plot. Like those X-Wing pilots might come back again at some point this season as necessary allies for a problem that comes up. And the other thing I'd just like to say in, in an act of self-serving promotion is that like, if you've never played the Star Wars RPG before, the Edge of the Empire Star Wars line is basically this show. Like this is this is what the game is designed to give you the experience of. So if you've never tried a tabletop RPG before, the uh, Edge of the Empire Beginner Box is not that difficult to find. It gives you everything you need. If you've never played, it sort of gives you a play-by-play and explains how to run the game for yourself and uh, either your kids or a couple friends or whatever. And it's it's a real fun interactive storytelling game, improvisational storytelling game. So, yeah, uh, if you like the Mandalorian, you should try Edge of the Empire. Even on Discord, you know, there's a lot of people right. doing online gaming. Like we're recording this episode on Discord, and there's nothing that says he, says that you can't enjoy these RPGs, right? Like this is a a huge thing for for the sweaty Star Wars geeks to be we able love to it. live in that world right and and to go beyond just being a cosplayer or whatever but actually being able to express yourself and uh experience the world firsthand yeah tyler's like up to speed on this stuff too i was gonna i was gonna weigh in have since i have a couple of the books on my rpg shelf back there it, yeah it, so it's not just keith saying oh this thing i worked on is great i haven't worked on it and I, I do have to say one of the things that it does bananas well, like one of the best times I've ever seen an RPG do this is how well it feels like Star Wars from the jump. Um, it has a unique dice system and like the way that they have of failing forward. Sure. Just it's a maximum Star Wars. It's so easy to be like, you roll it and you're like, oh, geez, that's and you. You botch the roll and that's the time where you're Han Solo being like, we're fine. How are, how are you? Or yeah, or your Luke Skywalker blast the bridge controls, or blast the the blast door controls, and like, oh, now the bridge doesn't work, so now we have to swing across. Yeah, exactly. It'd be like succeeding at one thing, but it's screwing up the next thing, yeah. or failing at one thing that's helping the next thing. You know, that Star Wars sort of uh, uh, making it up as you go along feel, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, I love the game. That's all Jay Little's uh, design. He also designed the X Wing miniatures game, so he's a yeah. legend and a giant. It's got like some billion dollar games to his name or whatever yeah. uh real smart creative guy and I, i'm just lucky enough to like expand and work on the system after that part got done but I, i'm uh, curious about part of that process i know i asked jim zub this as a as a creative who I, I met once or twice he's a super nice guy he yeah really is. he was he was on the show and um we discussed his upcoming book which delves into the canon side of empire strikes back it's got a short story where he's writing yoda um, How fun. 
yeah, like what a what a treat that is. Um, I've got mine on pre-order, <laughs> so uh, we're gonna have him doing that. But I asked him about the the canon process from his point of view, and he said that he would basically submit the story, and then it would go through like three different people at Lucasfilm, you know, where they would almost answer their own questions. They'd put on the liner notes or on the notes of of the document or the story. They'd say stuff like, oh, can this happen? And then right. the next person goes in and says, oh, yeah, it's totally open to do that because of this situation. Mm-hmm. You know, like Yoda would have, you know, whatever the whatever the clarity is, then they're almost answering their own stuff. So he's like, well, as a writer, I'm getting, okay, this is a green light then. I can, I can have the character do that. Do you have any restrictions right. like that when you're creating in the universe? Like, is there stuff that has to go for approval or at least a once over? <laughs> So uh, Lucasfilm. Absolutely. First of all, uh, the Lucasfilm story group, which is the people, it's Pablo and Leland Chi and uh, Matt Martin and a whole uh, office full of wonderful people who uh, uh, update their internal holocron. And they also, you know, it's not just Wikipedia, but better. They they know what's going to happen. They know what's in production and and all this Mm -hmm. other stuff. They also have access to Wikipedia, right? Uh, So those people go through everything. And that includes all the stuff that I work on. So, uh, yeah, we have to deal with that uh, part of the process as well. Now, as a freelance writer, I don't see a ton of it um, because my boss, uh, Sam, Sam Gregor Stewart, he uh, does a lot of that interfacing as one of the sort of in-house people. Uh, he's the RPG managing editor at FFG and now at Edge Studio, uh, which is where all these games have moved, sort of like an internal reshuffling. But uh, So he deals a lot with a lot of the back and forth more so than me. Uh, right. But I do see some of it, right? Like uh, for some projects like the Rogue One slash Rebels book, uh, Dawn of Rebellion, like that one, we were working on it before the movie came out. So LFL was giving us like uh, some advanced materials to be able to do the job, right? Uh, and and everything we do write gets sent to them at, at the final draft stage, at the outline stage, the mid draft stage and the final draft stage, I want to say, for uh, notes and approval. And, and sometimes those get filtered through uh, my boss, Sam, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes I get them just in, in line in the comments of a, my Microsoft Word manuscript mm-hmm. or whatever. Right. And I could see specifically what you know, Pablo or, or whoever might have said about, about a thing. And uh, because I'm such a fan, and as you can see, this is just the Star Wars books behind me in <laughs> uh, these shelves here. Like my other books are far over there and elsewhere in the house. The Star Wars stuff has to stay close, though. But uh, uh, so I'm pretty well versed in the lore, so I'm probably not going to make uh, a mistake about old lore because that's researchable anyway, and I'm just really familiar. But uh, there's stuff coming out that I don't know about. So uh, I know certainly in, in uh, Friends Like These, which is uh, an adventure module I wrote that features Mandalorians really heavily uh, a few years back. Uh, for that, I wrote a whole bunch of stuff, and obviously I didn't know about the Mandalorian. I didn't know... Some of the planets that I tried to use in that book were were being used somewhere else in a very different way in a like a novel in development that I didn't I had no way to know about. Uh, so things get changed. You get kicked back, and they're like, "Well, we can't do this. It's already spoken for." But maybe mm-hmm. they'll suggest something else. Or often uh, LFL will just say, "Like, make up your own. Make make up something new that we can play with." They they seem to prefer that a lot of times to just getting circular referencing uh, old canon. So they, they like more of a mix, right? Expand uh, the universe, right? But yeah. do I ever feel like handcuffed or hemmed in? Absolutely not. Uh, I, I feel like 
every crazy thing I try to do, I, I always like almost every job I have, I'm like, man, I'm going to put this in here just to see where the line is. Like I'm waiting for them to say like, no, that's not Star Wars. <laughs> You're not allowed. You can't reference, you know, the holiday special. You can't reference, you know, I'm waiting for something to be like, that's not referenceable. Now the Mandalorian, of course, has showed us that like, of course, the holiday special is something you could reference. Like the whole character is like a walking holiday special reference. So like, no, there is nothing out of bounds, really. So every time I try to find where the line is and do something nuts, uh, it comes back approved and it makes it to print. And I'm like, oh my God, like, where is the line? I'm going to have to go crazier in the next job and see if I find it. So I, I'm always constantly trying to push the boundary and find the line and I've yet to find it. So I don't feel restrained in any way, shape or form. But also like, I'm not trying to write a book where like, Luke Skywalker does something weird. Like that's outside mm -hmm. the context yeah. of what RPG books usually do. We don't deal with characters that often. We deal with uh, bigger picture things, locations like planets, planet histories, uh, species, equipment, weapons, starships, stuff like that. Most of the characters we feature are ones we create on our own because you, you don't want too much like contamination of, of that canon timeline of certain characters. You also don't want the galaxy to start feeling small where yeah. like Boba Fett is everywhere. Like some, some people will complain Tatooine gets featured so often in so many things, including the Mandalorian. So you, you want to push back against that feeling that the galaxy is a much smaller place than it really is. I so, think it's got to uh, be one of the most visited planets. Because because it's an instant touchstone, right? People see yeah. all that sand and the two suns and they know they're not in Arizona, they, they know this is, this is Tatooine, this is Star Wars. When I was a little kid, my dad used to drive us from Chicago to Indiana uh, for the summers. We had some sort of summer like home thing out there when I was really little. And we'd go past this rock quarry just outside of Chicago, and we just called it Star Wars. We didn't even call it Tatooine or the sand. We just called it Star Wars because it looked like the Jundland Waste. You know, it was this big sort of rock quarry dug out on either side of the highway and it was a, a highlight of the drive every summer there and back as like a seven-year-old or whatever so like it's an iconic location that uh you instantly recognize as star wars yeah. so <laughs> so they feature it because it's shorthand for letting the audience know this is where we are yep and uh, like claudia gray canonized harloff minor that <laughs> goes to to prove that with Christian Harloff getting his name canonized in Star Wars, it just shows you that you're exactly right. That, that you know, come up with your own. <laughs> you need to explore that one, my friend. <laughs> Make it a gas giant. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. <laughs> Sorry, that was my sweaty. <laughs> uh, we get to do a lot of stuff like that in in the Friends Like These adventure. We have a location called Flemeth Port. And it was, I challenged myself to find like the most obscure <laughs> reference I could. And it's in like a GM screen table uh, uh, from 1987 from West End Games. There's like a table of planets you could go to to trade, you know, mercantile goods or, you know, whatever nonsense. And one of them was Vlemeth Port. And I'm like, I'm going to make that a location and <laughs> blow it up and do a whole chapter in this book on it. Because you just need a name. Sometimes you just need a name for a thing. And it's easier to yeah. find one than it is to make up a new one because naming things is hard, as Tyler knows. I'm sure. Naming things is a pain. It's it's like a whole after you've written your whole thing, I have to go back and fill all the placeholders for all the damn names of things. Yeah. <laughs> it is easier 
then having to do like what you're talking about where it's like oh i have to i have to those rare times where they don't let you come up with your own and you have to like thread the needle between other pieces of like established lore yeah the nightmare of that for me was uh uh there's a book i did called strongholds of resistance and i had to do eight thousand words um about uh the planet mon calamari mon now is what they call it Mm. and it was at a time when sort of the the killing the old canon and and having a new sort of official official canon was new so it it was real questionable about like what counted and what didn't and eight thousand words i can't just say nothing right like i'm gonna have to get into it (laughs) so it it was a nightmare uh of trying to figure out what what to say what locations to talk about what what history and events to talk about yeah, when when you have to do all that research and stuff, it could be uh it could be a lot of extra work. But I but I think when you do the work, the due diligence, like it pays off. Because oh, there's totally. there's fans who if you nail it, they love it. If you screw it up, you're you're gonna hear about it forever. So oh, totally. there's that it's, too. Yeah, it is that tricky avenue. And when they'll like make something up and you're like, Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, making yeah. stuff up is hard though too. Uh like a blank slate is almost harder than like here's the box you could work in. Oh, hundred percent. This is this is a middle zone. But now we're nerding out about creative processes. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I don't want to get too far outside what we do here. Yeah, maybe Although we could do that. Created so. Yeah, yeah, maybe we can do that in another episode because uh, Keith, you've been absolutely fantastic. I want you to let people know where they can find you and what you're working on. So. Give us, sure. give us your deets, man. I want to know where are you. So what are you doing? The Twitter is uh, at k r capel k a p p e l, and you know I'm not on there often, but if you at me or something, uh, I could certainly respond if you have questions. And uh, certainly, my professional work, anything I'm working on, will get promoted through that Twitter, so you'll be kept apace. Uh, the place where I usually am is Facebook, which is uh, uh, facebook.com/slash keith.capel. But if you go there, you're going to find all my like progressive leftist, you know, shit posting and stuff like that. So <laughs> like you're going to have to if you don't want to deal with that, that is fine. Like follow my Twitter. That's just my professional page. You don't have to be with deal with me being uh, uh, myself very loudly uh, if you don't like that. As far as uh, what I'm working on, I am freelancing now for Edge Studios, which has taken over uh, the RPG licenses from Fantasy Flight Games. Uh, it's not a new company. They're both subsidiaries of Asmodee which is this sort of broader game publishing company. Uh, it's I'm still working on the books. Sterling Hershey, who's worked on every edition of the Star Wars games, is still working on the books. Most of the freelancers have moved over, and that's because we have the same boss, the same managing editor, Sam Gregor Stewart, who uh, sort of captained the ship at FFG and is doing so now for Edge. So uh, same games, same uh, products. I think you'll start seeing reprints eventually with like Edge Studio logos on them of the old FFG material mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So. Uh, you know, if if you haven't played before, it's a perfect time to jump in. If you have been playing, that's where you're going to be able to find stuff. They just started their own uh, uh, social medias. Uh, I don't have that handy, but Edge Studio has a, a Twitter and a Facebook page and uh, their own website and all that stuff. So that we should start getting a lot more information soon moving forward. Excellent. Well, Keith Capel, thank you so much for everything you've brought. <laughs> Uh, to our discussion today of the episode regarding uh, The Mandalorian. Really appreciate all of your insight and all of your context throughout. My my long-winded pleasure. (laughs) 
that was it. What an awesome discussion we had. Um, again, I want to thank Keith so much. It was honestly a pleasure to have Keith on the show today to discuss Mandalorian, to discuss everything that he's been working on, everything that he's working on has worked on is working on and will work on um you know it's just uh it means a lot to have people who kind of helped um shape the canon that is this uh the galaxy the world uh the universe of star star wars um and you know it, it was it means a lot to have to have people want to chat with you know little old us about you know something so significant um you know in the geek world yeah that that was honestly i didn't know what we were walking into with 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 keith and whatnot and he's just so well spoken so knowledgeable it blew me away there were times in that interview where i'm just quite literally holding on to my hat uh just hearing some of the stuff that he's he's recounting for us and you know, even just near the end there, the policies and procedures for, for working with Lucasfilm. And I touched on some of that with uh, Jim Zub, and I, I sadly forgot to mention the new book that's coming out uh, this Tuesday, November 10th. And it's uh, Star Wars Empire Strikes Back from a certain point of view. So it's part two in that series, and we're excited for that. So I just want to make sure that Jim... Gets his shout out on that, along with Keith there at the end with with all of his stuff. Uh, we're now following each other on Twitter, and just what a great guy! Like honestly, I'm so excited about the possibility of either a getting him in for another analysis, or b just having him as a feature guest on our show and just really deconstruct some canon in Star Wars. Exactly, like you know, it's it was such an awesome talk. I had a lot of fun. So Keith. Thank you so much again for joining us, and I hope that we do have you soon on the show. Um, so, you know, it's just, I'm, I'm really excited, you know, this, having that conversation, even though you could probably count how many words I said in that hour, um, you know, it, it, it was a really great conversation. And again, going back to talking about the technical issues we were having, um, yeah. I was making sure that the episode was at least being recorded because the last thing I would want to do is to waste anyone's time more so than, you know, we sometimes had to. I think we started like five minutes later than we wanted to. Um, so, you know, it is what it is. Keith, thank you. Phil, you did awesome. Thank you for leading us in these discussions. And for those of you who haven't realized, Phil will be leading us in these discussions um, as we chat about all things Mandalorian, uh, and then uh, Tyler and I will kind of be your lackeys. We'll we'll contribute when we can. Um, but this is uh, you know I think Phil's passion project, as he is you know the in-house Star Wars geek. Yeah, and uh, you know I I apologize too about just the breakouts, um, just because I know Boris was having some heavy challenges and. And the recording came through great, but we were actually struggling to hear him. So sometimes we talked over him uh, inadvertently because we just couldn't even register that his yep. input was coming across. Because we're in that, you know, COVID world, we're doing everything responsibly and socially distanced and over the internet. So there are the challenges there within some times. And today wasn't one of our better days, but Boris managed to pull it together. So I really have to thank him for all of his technical efforts ongoing throughout this whole process of recording a podcast and Tyler as well, you know, we got him in there. I think, um, you know, it, it's, 
it's too bad we couldn't get more of a voice from Tyler, but at the same rate, he seemed to be quite satisfied because he, he seemed to be quite excited to just be observing and, and a part of that conversation as, as it was. Exactly. So it's a great honor, and thank you guys for giving me the opportunity to lead these shows. But, uh, yeah, it, um, it's something that I'll get better at as we go on. But yeah, and it's it's kind of a new thing in my portfolio to put in there, but um, it, it's a fantastic experience. So exactly. thank you. Exactly, it's a lot of fun. I have a, you know what? For me, I kind of like taking that step back. I gotta admit, <laughs> it, there was something to be said about actually being able to think about what I'm gonna say before I say it, to actually listen to what everyone. Ha- well, not that I don't listen, but you know, not being on top of my toes the entire time. Um, you know, making sure that conversation is moving. I kind of like that. Uh, you know, I'm yeah. like, we might have to explore this a little more. Yeah, and and for sure for for me being in this chair driving, uh it's it's interesting because I'm also trying to to appreciate and drink in everything that Keith is presenting. And it is really difficult because you're trying to project it to where you're going next and you're just reacting in your mind about you know, just the great information that he had about the spiders and, and, and all this stuff. And then seeing what you, you see on the internet and knowing that this kind of corrects that and, and your reaction in your own mind, right? It's like, it's stuff that you can't pre-anticipate. So it, it really is a challenging role, but definitely one that's, that's so much fun. Yeah. One thing I did notice was, I don't know if you noticed, um, you know, I know we've said this many times, but we record each other as we, uh, podcasts and discuss things and um i don't know if you noticed phil but keith had like a bunch of notes that i noticed that he kept looking at i'm like wow he's more prepared than me well he showed me before the show started recording because we had about 20 minutes or so of just uh, uh getting to know one another and whatnot yeah. And Keith showed me, he pulled up the pad and he's just like, yeah, I made notes. Yeah. And he was even joking with me this morning because he's like, I'm going to go rewatch the episode. And then I felt woefully unprepared because <laughs> I'm like, I made my notes yesterday and then I found all my autocorrects and <laughs> everything. So I'm like, I think I got Paul Lee's name wrong because yeah. it somehow uh, corrected it to be Hyundai. Yeah. <laughs> so, yep. so again, my apologies to everyone listening. Because you never know who is listening to our show. That's the one thing that always blows me away. Exactly. All right. So we're going to run down what the week looks like. So today is Monday. You are listening to our Mandalorian review. Tuesday, news of the week featuring, hopefully, Phil and Tyler and myself. Wednesday, we're going to have our featured episode where we are going to have a special guest, Matthew Ederer, who does a bunch of youtube videos taking a look at retro sports games so i figure why not have him as we discuss you know playstation 4 xbox one and the future consoles and hopefully by then best Buy can uh you know hurry up and send me the actual system um because uh, hey that's retro gaming man that's yeah. that's like right in there exactly uh so then um and then thursday matthew and i I don't know why I always call him Matthew. Uh, Matt and I are going to bring to you episode three of NXT Talk. Um, so that's this week in the It's Canada is there podcast. Gonna be, is there going to be ray tracing oh, in the off. in your Thursday? <laughs> I, I swear, I, 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 oh, nothing bothers me more than that word right now. 
Especially like as I talk with my nephew, he uses it so much. I'm like, can you just, just stop? Just stop. <laughs> just stop. Don't 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 sound cool. <laughs> um. So. <laughs> Yeah, so there we go. Uh, so that's pretty much what the week looks like. Um, and then we, you know, we have a, I can't believe we're already in, like, what, by the end of all of this, we'll be in middle of November, you know, and we're just, like, making our way to the 12 days of Christmas, which we need to uh, finalize and have fun, a little fun with that. Well, something did dawn on me when we were mapping out after the show about uh, uh, Mandalorian. And I think we're going to be in danger of the Mandalorian episodes overlapping our 12 days of Christmas. So there's going to be a lot of It's Canon podcast in your stockings this year. <laughs> yep. Yep. So, I hope everyone likes our voices because, uh, yeah. Yeah. We'll yeah. see. Get your headphones out. <laughs> exactly. But it's going to be fun. Um, so I think oh, yeah. that is it. Phil, how about you tell our awesome listeners how they can get a hold of us? Why certainly? Well, you can find us on our website, which is www.itscanapodcast.com, which Boris again went through and cleaned up big time. So it's actually a really pleasant and wonderful experience, especially on your phone or mobile device. So please make sure to stop by and check out all of our information about contacting, about the show, about downloads, about everything that you can like, try to understand about the Canon Podcast. But if, if you're looking on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, you can find us at It's Canon Podcast. You can email us at show at itscanonpodcast.com. You can subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Podbean, Amazon, really anywhere you find podcasts, you should find us. And if you don't, let us know. We'll get there. So if you like what you hear so far, make sure you you know never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button. And uh, be sure to give us a rate and review. And thanks so much for supporting us and listening to our show. That's right, because we are the It's Canon Podcast. We are the podcast to talk about all things geek. We talk about all things comics, all things movies, all things video games, all things toys, all things Lego, all things books, all things Star Wars, all things Mandalorian. And Phil, 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 do you know what the best part of it all is? It's all in canon, baby. That's right, it's all in canon. He's Phil, I'm Boris. We will, t hopefully, you will hear us tomorrow. Good night.